Hey everyone, welcome to The Water Voice. I'm Greg. And I'm Kevin, and we look forward to talking with you about all things water. And startups. And much more. Let's go. Let's drop some knowledge. Kevin, what's up, man? How you doing? Good. There's a lot uh, to talk about, so let's just jump right in. First of all, what's new in the new year? Like, what, what are you excited about? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm really excited about Aquapor. I think uh, the way the material technology has evolved over time, bringing the mixed designs closer and closer, uh, you know, we're inching towards commercialization. I think uh, it's met in a moment where the water industry needs innovative solutions. We've talked about them a long time, but I think the timing is really incredible. So I think this year is um, is going to be exciting for us. I agree. I'm, I'm with you there. I'm very excited about what we have going uh, at Aquapore. I'm excited for spring. I can't wait. Yeah, some to, nice to, weather. Yeah, to get through the winter the here. The doldrums. Yeah. Uh, of winter. We're recording this in late uh, January, but um, there's a lot going on in the world, and there's a lot going on in the world of water and the environment and um, some situations that I think cities are contending with, which they have been, but I think that's the topic of our first drop. I want to talk about this phenomenon or what's being termed weather whiplash. And specifically, let's talk about California. So, um, and, and really the topic, I think what we'll, we'll dive into is, uh, it, it comes down to stormwater and something that you have always beat the drum about is stormwater is an asset if we can utilize it. So we'll kind of wrap that into the conversation, but I do want to talk about what's happened in California. So over the past several weeks, um, California has gone from a state that has been experiencing historical drought to suddenly they got inundated with water. And so, um, you know, we talk about their drought situation. The last three years have been the three driest uh, years since like 1896, I read. And then in a three week span from the end of December to the middle of January, they received something like 32.6 trillion gallons of rain, which is incredible. That's like unprecedented. And so it brought their, you know, statewide reservoir storage back to historical averages. That's the good news. I think the good news is also that snowpack is 245% of normal uh, conditions. That's great news. It's good news that they're reporting some areas uh, near the Sierra Crest. So the Sierra Nevada mountains have seen over 500 inches of snow since November. But mm -hmm. at the same time, um, that blessing also can be construed as a curse. You had 22 lives lost. Maybe that count's gone up. Huge flooding damage. And then I was actually talking to my sister about this just the other day and um, something I didn't even think about. She's like, you know what? Uh, farmland's been totally flooded out. And so they lost a ton of crops with all this water. Um, so anyway, okay, I'm going on rambling here, but uh, I do want to talk about the big question, okay? And this is really what's taken up some of the news wires in 
you know, California for sure is the trillion dollar question. How does a state like California utilize all that water? How do they capture that? Because it appears to me that they captured very little of the water that fell. Yeah, Greg, you know, a few things come to mind, one of which is we got to change the current system that was built about 100 years ago. We're talking about infrastructure that is not built for the storms of today. Uh, These systems were designed with more concern about saving lives and property from flooding than they were about drought, you know, and the irony of that. Uh, And this presents some major issues. Uh, And the solution back then was essentially about laying millions of barrels of concrete to get rid of that water as fast as possible. I mean, Greg, we've talked about the 17 miles of the LA River that are actually lined with concrete. We've talked about it many times. Um, But if we're to save stormwater in the Los Angeles basin, some drastic changes to the current water system are very much needed. And and this is um, the obvious portion of the answer. That said, a few numbers to put this into perspective tell this stormwater story very well. Mark uh, Pastrella, the director of Los Angeles County Public Works, uh, stated that the county has saved 33 billion gallons of stormwater so far this winter, which is an impressive number, but also one that needs to be put in pers- into perspective because county officials have also stated their goal to capture 98 billion gallons of stormwater annually. So let's just think about this for a second. 33 billion gallons this winter is, again, an impressive number, but only about a third of the ultimate goal for Los Angeles County. Now, you could say 98 billion gallons of annual rainfall is much different than 33 gallons of winter rainfall, but this is where winter whiplash, what you talked about, really comes into play because from March through October, you know, you're essentially getting no rainfall recorded. In, uh, in the LA basin. And, and this is really due to that drought. So to reach 98 billion gallons of collected stormwater, I mean, you have to catch the majority of this in the period of just several months. Yeah. And this is really what those articles are you know, addressing. That is uh, so fascinating. That's amazing research too. I, I didn't realize, I mean, 33 billion gallons seems like a lot. So that's some good perspective and kudos. It's like, good, that's a start. But then when you put it in the grand scheme of what they need to ultimately capture, um, it's again, it's a fraction of what uh, they need to do. And, and I think it goes back to what you just said is we got this huge onslaught of rain. Uh, We can expect, we think, I mean, who knows, maybe it's a much wetter year for California, but we can expect that, again, those spring and summer months, especially early fall, you're going to have much, much drier conditions. And so I think that's really fascinating, you know, and, and to your point, you talk about infrastructure and how it was de- developed or designed 100 years ago. It really was set up to funnel um, stormwater or rainwater uh, away from properties and places as soon as possible. And so... The problem, too, we've talked about this almost ad nauseum. You have so much impervious surface area in cities, and now your stormwater removal mechanism is basically a concrete uh, river. And so all that stormwater runoff, it's going to pick up every pollutant and toxin 
along the way and get it out uh, from the city as fast as humanly possible. The problem is it goes right into the ocean. It carries with it all those pollutants and toxins along the way. Um, but over the last month, and, and this is an article actually that caught my attention and why I wanted to get you on here to talk about this because we're seeing a bunch more attention now being given to green infrastructure and stormwater capture and reuse, um, especially in LA. And what was almost like, I don't want to say startling, but I thought about you immediately when I saw this, because when we started down this journey in 2011, way before Aquaport even, and we're like, yeah, stormwater, it's a problem. And, but it was always, we were even told it was like the ugly stepchild of wastewater infrastructure with stormwater infrastructure. So when I saw the headline that Vice President Harris visited Tahunga Spreading Grounds in LA County to tout the stormwater capture and sort of stormwater innovation that's going on in the county. I was like, oh my goodness, stormwater has come of age. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. But then the the second thing I thought of was like, man, it's a same thing. I'm not going to denigrate the approach. I'm like, good start. But it seems so like brute force. It's like a 150 acre site in the Sun Valley that consists of these huge earthen bowls. So if I could describe this to people, it'd be like just huge retention ponds, um, slightly sunken down, that collects stormwater from the Tahunga Wash, which is like a 13-mile stream, and then it infiltrates it back into the groundwater basin there, recharging the aquifer. And so I think like those type of solutions are good, but it just seems to me... And I want your take on this, whether this is enough and whether this is a sustainable model. It just seems to me that that's like a low-tech approach um, and the future of clean water abundance, I don't think is with retention ponds. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, the project that you were talking about or the one that VP Harris was, was um, you know, expressing to the people is 12,200 acre feet per year. So that's 4 billion gallons. But to go back to the main goal of the county and to put the Sun Valley project into perspective, 98 billion gallons of stormwater is 300,000 acre feet per year. Uh, so to the, in today's day and age, property values are simply too, you know, they're too valuable to put a 150 acre park, stormwater park in 25 different regions. That's just not feasible. On top of that, the soil composition of many areas in the LA basin, they don't allow for proper drainage to the aquifer. So a lot of these projects, they just wouldn't even be realistic. Now, Measure W is working. That tax incentive that was put into play in 2018, uh, you know, they've awarded $400 million to more than 100 regional projects. But many of these projects are still, uh, excuse me, still considered centralized in fashion. So the, the Rory M. Shaw Wetlands Park project comes to mind. Uh, they converted a 46-acre landfill into a wetlands park uh, to collect stormwater runoff. In my opinion, though, the only way to achieve this 98 billion gallon goal is to Da, 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 decentralized infrastructure. How many podcasts have I brought this up? Uh, but we're now in a, in a day and age of weather whiplash. So the unpredictability of wet weather events means that um, 
communities have to be ready uh, for when water does come, regardless of its volume. So decentralized infrastructure, which is often retrofit design projects or pocket projects, we'll call them, is a much faster way to achieve the goal of the county. So when we say low-hanging fruit, to me, this means finding projects that do not impede on current property uh, and ones that raise the value of the community in which they're installed while managing the stormwater capture. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree 100% with this decentralized structure, too, for solving this problem. And and you can have big centralized systems that they still have their function, um, wastewater treatment plants and whatnot. I just think there's a way to ease the burden on them. And um, believe it or not, um, I saw something on Twitter. Well, I mean, of course, you can believe I saw something on Twitter, but <laughs> this was put pretty elegant eloquently by um, a guy that I follow that is in the water space. He basically said, you know, when are we going to get to the point where we have closed loop water utilities? And he made the point that think about it, California in many cases imports water from over 200 miles away through the desert just for it to go back out into the ocean. Yep. You know what I mean? They import 60% of their water in the LA basin. It's, it's incredible. So as we get back to kind of talking about LA County, um, because that's where, again, this Tahunga spreading grounds, this approach to, you know, these huge, uh, retention ponds, um, is taking place. You know, it, it dawned on me up to 45% of all the land in LA County is impervious. And it's probably like that in most cities. And we know you and I do that the single biggest contributor to stormwater runoff pollution is impervious surface area, whether that's rooftops or streets or sidewalks. And so like what we're developing, what Aquapore is, I think is to solve that issue, thinking that the single best way to deal with that is literally making the built environment permeable or more spongy, mm-hmm. which we've talked about. Um, that way we, you know, can actually get water that falls into the ground and do it in a decentralized fashion. Um, Next kind of point on this, it looks like, and and Governor Gavin Newsom, he's, you know, given some, some thought to this. I think this is something that's not only on his mind, he's proposed something like over $200 million for flood protection and 125 million for drought related actions uh, in next year's budget. And so he says he wants them to go toward innovative, impactful projects. Um, so I'm just curious, where do you think the lowest hanging fruit is right now? Say the state gets all that money. Where could be the biggest impact most immediately? You know, Greg, I'm great grateful that you asked that question because I think it's important to talk about the human aspect of infrastructure you know, which I believe is really far overdue in this country and demonstrates why these water issues run much deeper than just recovering stormwater. Much of the information that we've talked about today, the links and the resources, they come from journalism that are rooted in the LA basin. But a recent article that was published in the New York Times uh, really takes a deeper dive into the issue of flooding in Los Angeles. And it states that more than 400,000 people live in parts of Los Angeles County uh, that can be inundated with a foot or more of flood water in a 100-year flood event. 
and uh, a disproportionate share of the most vulnerable are disadvantaged community. This was a, a recent study by researchers at the University of California, Irvine. They found that black residents of the community were 79% more likely than white residents to be living in a risk of deep flooding of at least three feet. Greg, that's at least you know waist high. Uh, Latinos, it was 17%. Asian communities, it was 11%. And many of these neighborhoods are clustered once again around the 17-mile concrete oasis known as the Los Angeles River. Uh, you know, we're talking about $108 billion in property that lay within this 100-year flood zone, and that would be impacted comparable to those of the major hurricanes like Katrina, Sandy, and Harvey. So when you talk about spending money, where this money should go, who is impacted, I think it's very clear based on the science and the research that the money should go to certain communities or to prevent those communities from flooding because they are the down gradient. They are the down gradient property. Um, and it can be linked back to the infrastructure constructed in the decades following World War II. This is not new. Uh, you know, it's undersized and, um, and you know, and inaccurately maintained. Uh, the volume of runoff that channels um, must handle, they're overgrown. Uh, and we know it too well. It's through an expansion of impervious surfaces caused by development. Major, yeah. major issues. But again, I think wrapping it into the human nature aspect of building infrastructure, our communities and integrated planning have to coalesce with spending this money. Uh, and I think we go there first. That's really well said. I think that you're on to something there. And I think that um, that is low-hanging fruit. And we could get into, and we'll maybe save this for another uh, podcast, but I think I told you I read the book and I'll hand it to you uh, when I think of it, The Law of Color. And it talks about how basically these communities, um, colored communities, quite frankly, brown and black communities were segregated after World War, War II. And the way it went down is absolutely... Uh, it, it will get your blood boiling. But the other thing is you can see why they're the most impacted with these type of weather events now, because um, they're sitting not only in low lying areas, but they're sitting atop more decrepit infrastructure than say other areas of, you know, pick your city, for yeah. example. Go but, to Detroit, look, stare at the highway. Everything's yeah. right next to the freeway. Yeah. Yeah. You um, redline communities and over a course of four or five generations, just see what happens. Yeah. You know, it's, it's clear. It is clear. Well, the good news is there is technology and there's innovation and there are people that care about this and know that we can't keep doing the same things the way we've done decades and decades and decades ago if we want a different result. And we are, we're living in a different era today where extreme weather is becoming more and more common. And of course, we've always had extreme weather. The difference is we didn't have cities that were urbanized to this level where so many people rely on the public good, whether it's clean water, you want clean air, you know, the things that we need to actually survive, clean food, things of this nature. We are, we're living in large cities where they're urbanized and the time is now to actually start future proofing for these type of, you know, uh, weather events moving forward. So with that, um, it's good seeing you, man. Good to see you. 